Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, everyone, and welcome to special simulcast of Freedom from Addiction, Truth Just Below the Surface in the Neil Haley Show. I'm excited to welcome the program, Reverend Wynn Henderson, MD. Wynn, how are you? And uh, this topic today, we just continue to talk COVID, and one of our best experts that has come on this program is joining us today. That's right, Neil. Um, We've got uh, Dr. Gaxton O'Pair today on the program, and he's been on a number of other times. And you can look at uh, at uh, my uh, my podcast and go back and and get his other programs because uh, he he's uh, so good at um, critically thinking about and evaluating scientific studies relating to COVID nineteen. And you know we're here to bring you the truth just below the surface, and Dr. Caxton is providing the truth. Uh, Dr. Caxton O'Pair is a board-certified internist with 31 years of experience, and he is experienced as a frontline COVID physician. And um, so, um, Caxton, it's nice to have you on the program again. Thank you, Dr. Anderson. It's a great pleasure being here again. So I've got your new book. uh, And... uh, we will talk about uh, Amazon blacklisting in the previous book, perhaps a little later. But um, um, what was uh, surprising to me was that that they want to support a narrative that goes against many of the things that you have found to be true. And they're in your book. They don't want people to be able to read them. Is that right? Yes, absolutely, Dr. Anderson. Well, um, I don't know if there's a way of getting around these problems. The people have a narrative that they want to push. They've got an agenda that they want to push, and they're going to push it. They're going to censor the people that don't buy into their narrative, and they're going to do everything in the world to demonize them, and make you think that there are conspiracy theorists that don't know what they're talking about, just so that they can get a shot in everybody's arm. Or at least that's what it seems to me. It's beginning to look that way. So uh, I'm, uh, we've got a lot of material, but we've got a hard stop at nine o'clock. So I'm going to try to get as much of it as I can in. Um, sure. There was a story that you told in your book about a mysterious coroner. Can you give us a, a quick summary of this doctor and what his town uh, showed? Well, during the pandemic and as it rose to its peak in one of the rural 
emergency rooms I work, this gentleman came in one night to ask the nurses. I had given them two of my books in the emergency room. So this man is a coroner. He's also a physician. He came into the hospital one night after he left the clinic. I, I don't know why. Maybe he saw a lot of COVID patients and he knew he had to do something. Even more importantly, as a coroner, if people die the way they're probably going to die inside the hospital within 24 hours or less, he's going to have an overwhelming task of certifying deaths and saying yes or no, no autopsy, get an autopsy. So he came into the hospital, asked one of the nurses to help him download the Amazon app. He had no Amazon app. He downloaded the app and then he bought the book, The HCQ Debate. And the very next day, or sometime the day after, he started writing hydroxychloroquine cocktails based on the protocols in the book. Uh, it's a book I wrote in September of last year, The HCQ Debate. He started writing it. And we see usually about six patients in a 12-hour shift, between eight to 12 patients in a 24-hour shift. A month and a half later, I went back to the ER to work, the same hospital. And for 24 hours, I didn't see a single COVID patient. On the second 24-hour, I was working a 48-hour shift. On the second 24-hour, about 7 p.m. the next day, a diabetic came in and I said, wow, this is our first COVID patient in more than 24 hours. So the ER nurse said, oh, you didn't hear? I said, hear what? I don't live in this city. What can I hear? He says, she said, the coroner got a hold of your book and the protocols and started taking care of these patients instead of sending them off to the university center where they were doing nothing for the patients. So there was a nearby university, big university center, about an hour or so away. And these people were not treating the patients. Of course, they were following the uh, Fauci cocktail of do nothing. And the number of cases per day dropped drastically in that city. And that's why I put the man's, I didn't put his name and identity in there, but he saved a lot of lives in that city. And just, he, he saved them by using the uh, hydro, uh, hydroxychloroquine and the combination with zinc, vitamin C. But the main component of that cocktail is hydroxychloroquine. And again, I think it was hydroxychloroquine has been blacklisted. And we know why now. It's very obvious and clear to everyone now at this point. But he saved a lot of lives with that drug in combination or if patients had heart failure or significant heart problems, it just gave them hydroxychloroquine and the other cocktail of zinc and the uh, nutritional supplements. Okay. It did a fantastic job. And that's why I put his story in the book. Okay. So I'm on uh, the introduction and I'm going to quickly read you what you wrote and then you can tell me uh, what comments you have about it. In the United States, doctors have been split. We have doctors who do not see the role of any agent in the early treatment of COVID-19. They maintain their position by citing tainted scientific data, naively believing science cannot be used to tell a lie. Some of these doctors also launch attacks on doctors that have critically sifted through the data and have decided to treat early 
COVID-19 patients with pre-approved drugs. Unfortunately, doctors that cannot see the value of early treatment have always posed a real danger to the well-being of those seeking such early treatments from them. Unable to critically assess the literature, yet priding themselves on analysis obtained from news outlet doctors that may have been paid by vaccine manufacturers, these doctors refuse to treat patients and watch them die or get seriously ill and hospitalized following infection with COVID-19. This group of uninformed or rather ill-informed doctors is one reason the pandemic is still with us. What's your comment? <laughs> it's a pretty bold statement. And it shows not my own arrogance, but my frustration. Dr. Wayne, when you think about it, we have a situation where a group of doctors use a drug and it works. And another group of doctors then come up with a clinical trial to intentionally try to disprove the first group, which is the doctors that treated patients and got results. And I didn't know that there is a crookedness in the pharmaceutical world or the scientific or medical world this much. A professor in San Diego called Professor Lemon McHenry, Professor Lemon McHenry, he said, when you publish a paper showing something is great, and he wasn't referring specifically just to COVID, the pharmaceutical companies, if your results compete with their drug, they will hire a medical writer who will forge and create a fraudulent paper. And sometimes within few days after you've published your paper, another paper will come up in a reputable journal showing the contrary. But here's the problem. If a doctor says hydroxychloroquine works or ivermectin works, what use is there for another group of doctors to now do a study showing that it didn't work for them? A patient has a risk of death. There is a drug that works for a certain group. Isn't it our responsibility to do everything we can for the patient, knowing number one, that the drug is relatively safe, it's cheap, it's accessible, there's easy access to that drug. When a patient has only one option, death or severe disability, and there's a cheap drug with a safety profile that's over three to six decades, meaning both ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, I don't think any real doctor who cares about lives has a choice. But we are seeing these doctors thinking they have a choice to claim intellectual superiority and refuse to prescribe the drug that may be of use to patients. And that's what spurred me to make that statement very clear, that if you're a doctor, and you refuse to do something that you can do that may save that patient from being hospitalized with this pandemic, you're not just a coward, you may be a murderer because it's a very strong statement. And I don't veer away from strong statements because the inertia amongst doctors 
the fear that they have, there is no more justification for it, looking at the number of people that have died. We are in a time of war with COVID, and doctors should be willing to educate themselves and be bold and confident. They're coming in a little late, but it's never too late to come in and say, look, I've looked at all the papers and I'm going to prescribe this thing because it may be very helpful. And there are no other alternatives to well, the early. You know that I surveyed, oh, maybe as many as 35 doctors uh, mm -hmm. previously. Yes. To see if I could uh, get a patient uh, to get a prescription for hydroxychloroquine. And not a one of them would do it. And the basic reason was that they were afraid that if they did, that the powers that be would take their license away from them or do other destructive things. And uh, so that's referring to what you were talking about. Doctors are afraid. They're afraid yes. of losing their jobs. Yes. Yeah. But I think that when a doctor arms himself with knowledge, because some people on Facebook some people actually said, hey, Dr. Perry, you're saying people should use hydroxychloroquine. You know, you could lose your license. And I had to respond to them by saying, I can never lose my license. The only doctor that may lose his license is one who doesn't know what he's doing. I know the data. I looked at the papers. I read the research. And there is nothing in those papers that tells me not to use hydroxychloroquine if I feel it's going to be useful for my patients. Nothing whatsoever. They can lie, but if you get all the actual data and read it thoroughly, you'll know that those people publishing those papers are lying about the lack of efficacy of hydroxychloroquine. And as you can see, now we have ivermectin, and they are indifferent. They are feigning indifference to ivermectin. So much so that the FDA has said, oh, we're not saying don't use it. We're not saying use it. And then they found another company, Merck, who has distributed almost a billion doses of ivermectin. And then this same Merck is saying ivermectin is a dangerous drug. This is a drug that they've allowed to be over the counter. Anyone could buy it to deworm uh, their children or adults. You don't need a doctor's prescription in most countries with ivermectin to get it. And all of a sudden, Merck turns around and said, it's a dangerous drug. That's the level of atrocious behavior found amongst the pharmaceutical companies. And they're also spurring the fear amongst doctors because we've always looked up to them to provide financing and research uh, information. And that's no longer true at this point. They just want to make a profit and they don't care who dies. Exactly. And, and, and the reason they want to do that is because if then this you know, pandemic was over, what is there to do now, right? It's big pharma. So if you could say we could easily take it, especially if we are susceptible to getting COVID more likely than other people, meaning like you're really always involved with people, you're seeing yeah. so many people like you're a frontline worker or yeah. even certain things, or but they won't say that because they got to get the vaccine out everywhere. That's the bottom line. Yes. 
And you heard about the third booster, right? Yes, the third booster is <laughs> coming. Yeah. You remember, Nick, I, Neil, we said this earlier in the year. Remember that they're going to try to third. I think you actually mentioned that and said, do you think they're going to try to do a third booster? Or they're yeah, yeah I, I was one of the first people to say that. I knew it was happening, yeah. Yes, I remember that. And the whole idea of trying to vaccinate a person. Now, I want to remind us, the COVID affected and killed 291 or 297 children. I don't know the exact number. During the pandemic at its height, 291 children died. But all those 291% I mean, 291 children, 100% of, of them, all of them had one or more comorbidities, chronic illnesses. They were sick children, every single one of those children that died from COVID. Now, as of April, there were 789 cases of myocarditis in people under the age of 30. Now, you want to look at these numbers very closely. As of June, 21st, there were at least 1,300 cases of myocarditis in these young children. And myocarditis for a young person is the equivalent of a heart attack. So picture this. The CDC, they're saying, well, there were 1,300 plus cases of myocarditis. It's not just a statement. In reality, myocarditis is a cause of death in children. In the very young, the newborns, those born within the first year of life, if they develop myocarditis, 75% of them roughly will die from it. In the older age group, the 30 or less, the numbers may be between 15 and 75% that will die. So when you look at COVID by itself, no treatment, nothing, 291 children died, and every single one of them was very sick with something. Now we want to give the vaccine to very healthy children. And out of those healthy children, so far we know 1,300 as of June 21st, 1,300 of them what have developed myocarditis or pericarditis. And out of that, about 40% will die. So if you just do a simple number between 15% and 75% and say, we're going to take the lower one and say 40% of the children who develop myocarditis are going to die as a result of it. That's 40% of 1,300 as of June, that's 520. So basically, COVID by itself will kill 291 people I mean, children, but the vaccine, and remember the COVID was killing children that were not healthy in the first place. Now we're going to give a vaccine, and the vaccine is going to kill a minimum of 520, which is 40% of 1,300. And as of today, I'm sure it's more than 1,300 children or young adults who will have developed myocarditis from the vaccine. So even if we take the June 21st number of 1,300, 520 healthy children are going to die as a result of getting the vaccine. That's not a benefit to those children or their parents. 
And more so, let's look at this basic factor. The vaccine does not prevent you after you've gotten it from transmitting the virus to other people. So when you want to vaccinate children who have a highest risk of developing myocarditis, which is basically giving children a heart attack, who are you helping? You're not helping the children. They won't even have been sick in the first place. They transmit it. But you're not even helping their parents. If you say, oh, well, when we give the kids, it will prevent the kids from transmitting the virus to the parents. The virus or the vaccine, rather, the vaccine does not prevent you from transmitting the virus. So basically, you're just trying to kill the children. And we don't know where that's going to end. Okay, there is no let, let, me, let me break in. I want to talk about the vaccine. You yes. talk in your book about the vaccine that they're giving people in the arms. My uh, take on this is that is not a real vaccine. No, it's not. I, I, looked, I, agree. It up, I looked it up and they said vaccines were from dead or attenuated uh, viruses. I'm and uh, and this is not that. This is something totally different. So I don't know why we continue to call this shot a vaccine. I know the reason that they want to call it one is so that they can limit the liability of big pharma to get sued when people have death or a bad reaction. They want to let them be able to uh, vaccinate as many people as possible and never suffer any financial loss. So they call it a vaccine. So every time that we're talking today, I am in my mind putting vaccine in quotation marks because that <laughs> is not what the people are getting. I agree with you 100%, Dr. Anderson. And you know, people like to argue that it's not a form of gene therapy. And I said, you've got to not be able to think critically. It may not be an exact gene therapy, but it is a form of gene therapy. And why? What do genes do? They control protein synthesis, right? So imagine that you now have a snake, a portion of a snake venom, the part of the snake the gene in the snake that controls venom production. And you take that portion of the genetic code from the snake, and then you insert it into my DNA such that I start producing snake venom in me. That's gene therapy. But let's look at the end product. The end product is I begin to produce a protein called snake venom. But if I don't let it attach to my DNA and I create an mRNA that not, it doesn't go into my nucleus to affect my DNA directly, but instead it goes to the ribosome, which is one step closer to protein synthesis. The mRNA then produces the snake protein, not from my DNA, but from the protein producing uh, factory called the ribosome. 
at the end of the day, God didn't make me, design me to be producing snake venom. But you have now inserted something into my body that's now going to make me produce snake venom. That's gene therapy. And instead of snake venom, it's a spike protein. Ladies and gentlemen, it's gene therapy. And that's my take on that. I don't know what Dr. Henderson feels about that. Analogy. Okay. Uh, whether you call it gene therapy or you don't, yes. it's not a typical, typical traditional vaccination. Now, you said, I knew something was wrong when the vaccines, in quote, last year, when Dr. Fauci started claiming that the vaccine was safe, just yes. two months into clinical trials. No yes. one else in their right mind will tell you that a two-month-old vaccine is safe, even if it has 100% efficiency. To think America is supposed to be one of the safest places for a child in the entire world, despite reports that people are dropping dead shortly after getting vaccinated, we not only ignore the statistics of the clinical trials or adverse vaccine reports, we add insult to injury by recommending the vaccine, in quote, to young children. Where are the evidence-based numbers on risk-benefit analysis that allows them to arrive at such a horrific conclusion to vaccinate children? While the myocarditis, pericarditis complication in children is short-term, the CDC is intentionally ignoring the potential long-term effects of these, quote, vaccines on growing children or the reproductive system of young children. And now they're wanting to do clinical studies so that they can vaccinate children. Yes. All right. When you think about that statement, or the group of things you just read, young children are growing. No one in their right mind knows the long-term adverse effects of these vaccines. They never did sufficient animal studies. And, you know, there's a staging of vaccine, you know, strategy and administration through clinical trials, where you first test mice, then you test monkeys, and then you test man. And at each stage, when you go from one animal, which is the mice, you not only test the mice, you evaluate the offspring of the mice. And if you get everything right, we know there was no time to test all of this because of the pandemic. We'll assume that they will then use the data that they've collected and the information they have to decide, number one, who needs to be vaccinated? The children don't need to be vaccinated. Less than 0.04% of children who got infected ended up in hospital or dead. In fact, there were eight states in the United States that did not record a single death for children. And the numbers are so low. There is no basis for it except an agenda, which may be profit, or something even more sinister, Dr. Wynn, you cannot find any justification. There's something called a risk-benefit analysis. 
which was how I gave the example of 291 kids died in the midst of this craziness when we didn't know what to do or most people didn't know what to do. And now that we now know what to do, we have already set up at least 500 young children, the future of this nation. We've set them up to die simply because we want to vaccine. And we're not done yet. On April, I think April 12, the CDC, FDA, NIH met, and they then made a recommendation that children from the ages of 12 should be vaccinated. Remember, it was the same April where they had 789 cases of myocarditis. Back in, I think, 1976, when they had the swine flu uh, vaccine, they gave, there were over 400 people that developed Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is the equivalent of being run over on your spinal cord by an 18-wheeler. You're paralyzed, and you're paralyzed from the waist or from the legs all the way to your diaphragm where you're unable to breathe. As a matter of fact, I lost an, an old friend from Guillain-Barre because they didn't make a diagnosis on him real quick in the uh, late 90s. So by the time they had 40 million people vaccinated with the swine, uh, swine flu uh, H1N1, by that time, the government felt we have vaccinated enough, but we've got 400 people with Guillain-Barre syndrome. About 63 of them died. We need to stop vaccinating. And they did stop vaccinating with that vaccine. Now, okay, let, let, me, let me break in because you're such a good medical writer. And this is in your book. And the people that get your book can read it at their leisure and everything. But you said... Still no medical justification for vaccinating these young children, except that there is a hidden agenda or it's just plain corporate greed with total disregard for true efficacy. The risk of harm outweighs the benefits of the mRNA vaccine, in quotes, to children and should never be compared to effective immunization benefits from tetanus, measles, smallpox, polio. We yes. must apply the brakes on vaccinating children with these new, quote, vaccines. If we don't, then the policymakers may be psychopaths for allowing this to take place. When so, uh, yeah, we are getting close to running out of time. We're gonna wrap this up. Um, Dr. O'Pair, um, we didn't get to the, the, the best part. The Amazon Back part. and do another program? Sure. Okay, so um, the book is called COVID-19 Remedies, A Frontline Doctor's View. Um, you can um, get a copy of that how, Dr. O'Pair, quickly. Yes, on Amazon.com. Okay, all right. Well, I, I think that's it for today. And We'll get back with another one, and we got better stuff coming. Thank you. All right. Well, we appreciate it. Thanks again, guys. Appreciate that. Again, that was Freedom for Addiction, Truth, Justice, Below the Surface, and the Neil Haley Show. And great to always have Dr. Caxton on the program. Thanks Thank again, you. and we appreciate it, guys. Thank you. All right, guys. That uh, Appreciate the show, and take care. And you're listening to the Neil Haley Show, and we'll be back in just a moment. Please listen to the Forletta Podcast. 
Larry Forletta, a retired DEA agent turned private investigator, will bring you true life stories on the war on drugs with some of the most infamous international drug traffickers of all time, to name a few, Pablo Escobar, Manuel Noriega, Joaquin Guzman, aka El Chapo, and other related real-life crime stories such as Waco. For information, please visit his website at www.fcisllc.com. Welcome to your beautiful day on the Gratitude Radio Network. I am Jen Mogg, mother of gratitude, and I hope wherever you go, you have gratitude with you in your own life. And with me today is Neil Haley. Hey, Neil. Hey, Jen. What's going on? Excited about our guest and always excited about debuts. And I watched the trailer of this movie and it seems very interesting. So go ahead with our guest. Oh, I love it. You're always excited. You're always in a good mood. Oh, yes. I'm trying to be, especially now it's June, you know, we're ready to go. And uh, the pandemics ended in some people's mindsets, but in Florida, it already did years ago. But let's go. (laughs) This is true. This is true. And speaking of years ago, you know, it wasn't just yesterday. I was in high school. So when I see a really cool movie, that comes out that's a high school movie. I just fall in love with it all over again. And I am so excited that today we have with us Alex Lowe. And this is his breakout movie, guys. This is the time when we look back at Alex and say, oh my God, remember one. And I think that this is so cool that he's doing this in a high school movie that you know, 30, 40 years from now, we can say, oh my God, this was amazing and still relevant. Um, I'm talking about Alex Lowe from Plan B. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Hey, Alex, what's going on, man? And I think that when you're talking about getting to see, and I want to bring this up because this is finally we're hearing this. You got to see this in the theater with live people. How wild was yeah. that? Yeah, yeah, oh, it was so great. It was my first return to the uh, theaters, you know, since the since COVID, you know, it's still going on. But since that whole thing first happened last year, um, you know, I haven't been to the theater since then, so it's so great. I got to see it uh, last week on uh, Thursday, last week, so one week ago. I saw the premiere with the whole cast, and it was just so great to see it with everyone on the theater, laughing. I think it's a movie that really benefits from, you know, being around other people in person. Um, so, yeah, it was really great to be in the theaters and get to see the film uh, in person with everyone I worked on it with. Red carpets are back, Jen. Are you ready? I've been ready. I've got my wardrobe ready. I've got my face. <laughs> but how do you like, Alex, this isn't your first movie. You've done a lot of movies before. Yeah, this is my, this is my uh, fifth movie I've done now. So it feels good to um, start to, you know, be able to count them on my, my hand. But um, this, this one I'm doing now, Plan B, this is kind of the biggest uh, part I've had in the film. So it feels nice to have some more screen time. It's, it's good to see yourself a little more. Absolutely. Sorry, go ahead, Neil. No, I was going to say, Alex, that, you know, when you go and you do that, you have certain roles. And then each time you audition, it gets better and better. So did you always want to be an actor? Is that something you always wanted to do? Uh, Yeah, from pretty young, I think I just had an interest in it because I wasn't very good at sports at all. So I kind of fluctuated towards the arts and there are a few films uh, I watched growing up, like uh, the earliest one that comes to mind is uh, Nacho Libre with Jack Black. Like that was something I watched when I was like a really young kid. And I was like, oh, this is so fun. And his style of 
physical comedy is so interesting and kind of intriguing to me that it made me like keep wanting to uh, learn more about acting. And then eventually I went to like college and studied it. So that's kind of where my interest kind of propelled forward. I love that. I love Jack Black. I love all of his movies. Yeah, he's great in everything. Every I, I, I just love his work. Like his kind of whole canon is really fun. So. So your character Rake is, is, does he have a little bit of Jack Black in him? I think he has goofy elements to him for sure. I mean, I've always been, like I said, attracted to kind of more physical comedy. So it was really great. Natalie uh, Morales, the director of the movie, she really gave us a lot of freedom to improv and kind of work outside the box, you know, and that's just something I really liked about this character is I was given a lot of freedom. So I guess you could say there's elements uh, of him in there. Sure. Yeah. And tell us about the, the film. Yeah, sure. So the film um, follows um, two high school girls, um, Sunny and Lupe, played by um, Victoria Morales and Kuhu Verma. And they kind of, they throw, it takes place in South Dakota and they throw this uh, high school party. And um, uh, Sunny, played by Kuhu, she uh, has sex at the party and she has to go get the plan B pill. But since they're in South Dakota, um, they get denied access to the pharmacy. And they have to uh, drive on this crazy road trip adventure to go to the nearest Planned Parenthood, which is like hours away. So I play Rake, which is like um, Sonny has a crush on this guy, Hunter, and I just, I'm his friend. So every time you see us kind of interact, I'm in there. Gotcha. I love it. I absolutely love it. Is, is there any, gosh, I know this is so exciting. Is this going to be, I, I think this is more of a movie, but I really want it to be a series, a TV series. Yeah, I feel like it could it could work as something that's a series. I was kind of more glad that it's a movie because, you know, you get your good beginning, middle, end all in like under two hours, you know, or a TV show. It's really got to expand more. But uh, I, I really could see it as a series. It's definitely got the plot where it could work like that as well. Yeah. Alex, have you heard anything about it being a TV series eventually? Um, or... Not not on my end. I haven't heard anything, but you never know. Uh, you know, it was a co-production from uh, American High and Counterbalance Entertainment. Counterbalance Entertainment, they do, you know, Cobra Kai, which is a big, you know, hit on Netflix now. So you never know. It could be. I've never, I haven't heard anything about it. So we're going to see one in Cobra Kai one yeah. point, Alex. Oh, uh, you, I would hope. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> they'll have me on. I'll do it. You know, I'm not, I haven't auditioned for the show or anything, but yeah, no, but I love you, you know, you, I, I don't know how many, I think this is the last season of it. I don't know. I, uh, the, I know they're on season four. I don't know if they've announced if it's ending yet or not, but maybe, maybe you have more knowledge of that. No, I exactly. So now kind of Alex, I think, what do you think people are going to get out of, especially, you know, adding a component like this to the mix with plan B as the, topic subject matter what was the reasoning of the writers for this to put this well i think it's because there's a lot of comedic aspects to the whole element of the story but at the end of the day it kind of is a serious subject you know access to uh health care and you know women's reproductive rights those kind of things come up in this movie you know when you have something like just getting access to a plan b pill you shouldn't be denied you know, at the pharmacy for that, right? You should just be able to go and get it. Like in some states, you can do that. So I think those are some of the takeaways, you know, on a more serious note. It's like, okay, we need to maybe like in broader terms, evaluate some of these aspects of our healthcare system and some of um, some of these states in the South, you know. 
And it's definitely um, a, a political topic because, I mean, you have this window of opportunity for the plan B, right? In the morning right. after, but here's the weird thing about it that I don't think people understand that, that I think needs to be regulated is you could go around, if you're of age, you can go to every pharmacy under the planet. They give you the plan B. There's no- Right, no questions asked. Yeah. There's nothing. So you don't know if someone's getting it, if someone's taking it, what's what's happening with it. But yet, if you're under age and this happens to you, literally you're screwed. Yeah, you just have, you have no other option unless asking, you know, a parent, hey, can you get it for me? And sometimes that's such a touchy subject, you know, you don't want to talk to your parents about that. So, you know, it's, it would be much better, I think, if you could just get it if you were under the age, you know, have more easy access to it. Or some type of, some type of regulation. And I think the really cool thing about the, having a movie like this, and to me, I've lived long enough to where I've seen I've seen the impact of movies like this is it does change things. It does change laws. It does change regulations. Right. Um, if you get everyone talking about it, it opens the discussion for it on a on a broader context. On a yeah. huge broader context. And something that would have seemed taboo years ago is now mainstream. Yeah, exactly. Wrong with it. You know what I'm saying? So it's it, I think the film tries to normalize these kinds of conversations that we should be having. So I think in that sense, it does a really good job of that. Absolutely. And have those conversations that maybe would not have made it on if it wasn't for Hulu, right? Could have made it to the theater right. for sure, but it would not have made it to any other station. Who knows? In the conversation, you get that opportunity with all these other platforms available for certain art that would not be available at times. Yeah, I was talking to this uh, with someone else about this the other day. Is I think that's something that's really great with streaming services is kind of all this new content that's able to come into the fold of everyone seeing it, right? Whereas before it was just kind of a few. Alex? You're there, Jen. Uh, big okay. studios that picked, you know, their stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Um, and I guess, go ahead, Jen, your next question. Oh, no, I, I couldn't hear Alex because he kind of froze for a second. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. No, but going to the conversations, these are the conversations that need to take place that people are afraid to, to have. And it has to start somewhere. And a lot of times when it starts with the youth, it actually snowballs into an effect that's needed in society. So right. how real it is, how raw it is, is something that needs to be seen. So we're, we're understanding and that we have compassion of what's happening. Yeah, exactly. I can only hope that it has a positive impact in all the ways that you're mentioning. So, so what definitely. did you hear about that? Is that basically that was the mo major point of the name? Did it have that name from the beginning with the- Yeah, I think that was the kind of just hit the nail on the head, right? I feel like that's kind of what it is. It's just like plan B, it's all about this pill, right? And it's all about access to it, you know, and all the comedy that surrounds kind of the, craziness of the inaccess. I think that's kind of why that's the title. At least that's my opinion. I don't know, you could ask the writers or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Whatever you're gaining from the writers on this is Alex is going and texting them right now. Uh, so yeah. um, what do you think you learned most being with that cast? That again, you said the other experiences you've had were not as big of roles in your other five, four movies you were in. What did right. you- Right, so about? this yeah. one, mm -hmm. yeah, with this one, I think I got, uh, to spend a lot more time with the core cast. Whereas before in a lot of these films, you know, just a couple of days, and it's usually with 
uh, people who are older rather than my same age, but all these people I worked with who are in the high school scenes, like, um, you know, like I was saying, Victoria and Kuhu and Michael Provost and um, Gus Bernie and Hannah Hayes, like they're all the amazing cook. Like these are all people who are part of the kind of ensemble cast of uh, high schoolers who make up this movie. And just a lot of them have had a lot of years, you know, in this industry since they were a kid. So me kind of just doing it more recently is interesting to kind of um, hear a lot of their advice from being in the industry for a lot of years, even though they're my same age and hearing, you know, kind of their inputs and what they have to say about, you know, acting or like what it's like in LA, those kind of, just those kind of things. Yeah. Interesting. But I would say um, one of the like big pieces of advice is just to always like trust your work. I think that's something I get across the board and got from Plan Views, you know, trust your character, trust your process and have a good time. I think one of the coolest things is that we, you guys shot this in upper New York, right? Upstate. Yeah. in upstate New York. So that's why I was saying earlier, the production companies, um, you know, counterbalance entertainment out of LA, they co-produced it, but it's also American high, which they've produced a lot of these films, um, upstate in Syracuse, Liverpool, and the, you know, kind of the surrounding area upstate, they, uh, own a high school out there. So that's why they just shoot a lot of these high school movies, which is really fun, I think. And it's cool to get to work, um, like in a more like I would say indie film kind of environment just because everything's more so in-house mm -hmm. but it's yeah. not a big studio you know it's just kind of more of this core team in upstate New York which I think is really cool yeah definitely what other films have you been in uh, most recently I did uh, The Binge with Vince Vaughn so that was really cool because I you know I grew up watching Vince Vaughn it's right. like the wedding crashers right and getting to share screen time with him and share scenes. That was probably um, one of the best experiences I've ever had in my life. So getting to work on that film was awesome. I also did um, Big Time Adolescence, which is also on Hulu with Pete Davidson. And I've worked with him in uh, two different films. So it was really great to like, you know, get to work with him once and then get to work with him again. So those are some of the uh, names of people I've really loved uh, to work with. Yeah. So that's pretty good early in your career to be able to get these opportunities, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I feel so lucky because I, you know, I went, like I said, I went to theater school upstate and I have all these people I went to theater school with who they're trying, but, you know, it's not really hitting for them. And it feels so nice. I feel so privileged and so lucky to be able to do this as my job, you know, as my work, just to get to be in movies and build up, you know, screen time and time in films has just really been a gift so far. And I hope it continues to be a gift in the future. It will because so, you yeah. definitely have that passion. God, yeah oh definitely I, I mean I describe it as like every time I'm on set it feels like I'm on a you know on, on a drug but it's really just being on set you know it brings this kind of energy to it you know that every time I'm not on set I'm like yearning to be back on set like oh when can I do that again you know what I mean? so I think it's something I'll always be chasing yeah there is no life like set life. I don't care yeah, who truly. you are, where are you from. There is nothing like being on a set ever. You can yeah. live there. Truly, and, it's universal in that sense. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's addicting. And I think that's why a lot of us, I, I hail from theater. I still go into theater. I love it. It keeps me sharp. It's one of those things you can always have. And when your friends that you have now or that you've gone through theater with, they'll, they're going to be your friends throughout your entire life, man, you can crash anywhere on anyone's couches or their bedrooms at any time from just being in theater. 
And yeah, absolutely. In theater, I feel like you really build those bonds with people as you're creating a show for so long. You know, you build those kind of lifelong relationships that even when the show closes and you all go your separate ways, you always kind of have built that bond that you can sometimes go back to, you know, like you're saying, crash on someone's couch or something like that. You still have that connection. Yeah, call out of the blue and you're like, dude, can I just, yeah, I'm just cruising in. And then yeah. there you are. And it's theater that I've only seen that to the extent that I have. Yeah, I, I think it's both in theater and film, just in different as in aspects, but it's still that same sense of community for sure in Absolutely. both in both circles. Yeah. Alex, how did you grow up? Tell us a little bit about um, your family. Yeah, um, I grew up uh, in Santa Ana, California, in Orange County, like an hour outside of LA. And I always did uh, like theater arts growing up. And I um, went to an arts high school here in Orange County where I did musical theater. I thought that's like, for a minute, I thought that's what I wanted to uh, do with my life. And as I continued to kind of, you know, study the theater arts, I wanted to do, you know, stuff for the stage, with like, which I still do. You know, I live, I live in New York now full time. So like, I love that aspect, hoping theater comes back soon, you know, but um, yeah, I just, I kind of just did theater arts, uh, and like choir and stuff here in Orange County growing up, but it never really like fulfilled me artistically. I always knew like I needed to go to LA or do something else. So that's why I decided to study it in college. Cause I told myself like, even if I don't end up having a career doing this in acting, I want to like know how to analyze it and study it. So that's why I decided, you know, to go to theater school and I wanted to go somewhere completely different so I decided why not upstate New York on the entire other side of the country you know it's the snow and everything so that's kind of a little bit about uh, me growing up and like how I landed more so on the east coast where I am now yeah all right so Jen I know you have the gratitude question now yeah I do yeah I do I have to say, I, I was really impressed when I was reading about you you've got a lot in your toolbox your actor's toolbox one of them's yoga. Thank you. Yeah, you do. You do. You've got it together, man. And you've got a balance. And I think one of the, the really cool things that I, that I researched was that you're into yoga and meditation. And that's what I love. I absolutely love meditation. It's changed everything. Amazing. I love meeting people who say that because it's been such a life-changing uh, thing for me as well. So it's always nice when I uh, connect with someone on that. You know, I had some um, mental rough patches. I know May was mental health awareness month. So I had, you know, in while I was going to theater school, I was having some rough patches and um, I kind of turned to yoga and meditation. It really became a tool for me, not only for like my mental health, but also I realized my work as an actor, because if yoga and meditation can get me to a neutral place, it would help me, you know, kind of build a character from the ground up. So it kind of really, the two kind of came hand in hand. So it's been great for me for sure in that way. That's cool. And that's had to up your game because you do martial arts as well, right? Yeah, martial arts is something I also like kind of came into in theater school. Um, my mentor at theater school is, is this nice old Russian man, Felix Ivanov. Yeah. Alex? I created this uh, system that's similar to martial arts and different uh, movement styles. So I would go in early, uh, like before... Uh, classes started, you know, very early and we would practice judo and other um, martial arts together, like before class. So I learned a lot through that. And that also became like a tool in my toolbox for acting. So it's really, that was also a really solid one to learn about. Yeah. And that's going to help you tremendously because you'll be able to see your character and, and you get to a point where it's almost like your character talks to you. 
Yeah, you become the character in a sense. And as corny as that sounds, it's kind of like, like, you know, you should be transformative in that way, I think, to some degree. Yeah, Yeah. and to be able to see your life later on and and everything. Um, Let me, I always ask somebody, gratitude's like my superpower when it comes to manifesting and the law of attraction and meditating and everything. Um, Do you have a, a, a moment that you could share with us that would be like your gratitude moment where everything just changed and pivoted to exactly what brought you to where you are now? Um, yeah, I would say a moment of um, great gratitude I had was, you know, uh, the first film I ever did, I played a pizza delivery boy in this small indie film upstate. And I have a lot of gratitude for just everyone I met there because that's how I came into contact with this production company, American High. So I have gratitude for that because these people that I met upstate ended up bringing me back for more film work, which led to other jobs. So it's like I really have gratitude for them and their whole group upstate because they really helped kick this off for me. So yeah, that's my, that's my aspect of gratitude for sure. Yeah. Cool. Cause yeah, this is, this is different. This, I don't think a lot of people understand in the entertainment and film industry. This is, it's not, it's nothing of, of monetary value. It's, it's the value is relationships that you build. Absolutely. And I think, I think that's carried over to every set I've ever been on the, like, I really try to have gratitude for every single person that works on every movie. You know, I'm always, when I watch a movie in theaters, I'm watching it to the very end, to the very, very end of the credits. Because now that I've worked on a set, it's like every single person here, I have gratitude for and they all matter because they're all helping create, you know, this final product. So it's like we should show respect and gratitude to all of them. So I always try and spread that good energy on set. I love that. I love that. Yeah, because nobody understands, like, thousands of jobs are created in creating something that's like this. Yeah, absolutely. There's so many people working behind the scenes that never, never get mentioned. So it's always good to give them a shout out. And did you guys um, film this during COVID or after COVID? Or we did COVID? actually film it during COVID. So it was uh, slated to start in that like first week of March when all the news, you know, was announced nationwide that everything's going to be shut down. So obviously um, it got delayed and we ended up shooting um, September, like October, November, kind of in there. Um, in that same year in 2019. So um, yeah, it was, it was still during COVID. Like we had to get tested every single time we went on set, we did a rapid test. Um, we were all wearing face masks the entire time, except for like, uh, except for the main actors, like right when we would do rehearsal before we shot the takes, we were just wearing face shields, right? So we would always be wearing masks, but right before the, like for rehearsal, the A-team would wear just face shields and then uh, a PA like right before we yelled uh, action would grab the face shields and we would do the take. So everyone was very, very safe. We didn't have any issues the whole time. I think they handled it beautifully as as perfect as they possibly could. But it definitely was still interesting shooting something during COVID and kind of just, you know, keep your distance. Don't socialize as much as you usually do, you know, kind of thing. So it was interesting for sure. Right, all the hugging. <laughs> yeah, no hugging, just just elbows, you know, <laughs> just trying to trying to be safe. <laughs> right. All right. I can't believe uh, how our time is almost running out. So Jen, go ahead and finish it, close it out. Thanks. Well, Alex, where can people find you? Because I just this is when yeah. You can follow me on Instagram at Alex Low Yo. 
Why? Yo! So Alex Lowe, yo. Yeah, that's okay. So you can follow me there. That's the only social media I use, but that's where I update about all my films and other projects. So follow me on there if you want to. Awesome. Fantastic. And Alex, about somebody wants to, um, if a producer or director is watching this, how can they get in contact with you? Um, yeah, they can, on my Instagram, there's a link to my talent agent. Also my IMDb, IMDb page has like my reel and all that. So I'm sure you can find me through the pipeline somewhere there. I would nice. hope that would be the best. Yeah. And what are you doing the best now? way? What are you doing? Um, I'm working on this um, clown and physical theater piece that I'm going to perform sometime over the summer in New York, as well as a uh, like a uh, series of uh, play reading. So that's kind of the shortest thing I have on the horizon. I'm really excited now that we can start to do those small kind of things again. That's that's the thing. The next thing. Yeah. <laughs> Good. You're keeping yourself sharp. Yeah. Time that you're on the set. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Just got to stay busy. Love doing the art. So just keep doing it. Right. Keep yeah. doing right. it. Awesome. Keep doing it and don't stop. Well, we have had such an amazing day today, haven't we, Neil? We have. Yeah, it was great to meet both of you, Jen and Neil. Thank you so much for having me. It was, I had a great discussion with you guys. It was awesome. Thanks so much. Oh, yeah. thank you. And thank you, Neil, so much for being with us today. And wherever you go, bring gratitude with you. We've been talking with Alex Lowe, where you can find him at Alex Lowe. Yo, I love that. It's like my favorite thing in the world. This is his breakout movie, guys. So go ahead and, and book him while you can, because you're not going to be able to afford him later. Yeah, and watch Plan B on Hulu, out now on Hulu. Yeah. Got to watch Plan B, because what's going to be your Plan B for tonight? Watching the movie on Hulu. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, Jen. So we just want to remember that you guys are blessed, you're loved, and you're sacred. Have a beautiful day. I love you. Celebrity Slots. Free spin. Free to play mobile social slot games in the likeness of your favorite celebrities. Making money. Spin to win celebrity experiences through sweepstakes. Free to download, free to play. Yeah, baby. What are you waiting for? Win meet and greets, celebrity merchandise, gift cards, and more. Download Celebrity Slots today. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.